Everybody's welcomed at COP28 and we encourage you to come. Our only ask is that you come with solutions and real actions. That was the UAE's COP28 Director General, His Excellency Majid al-Suwaidi, earlier this year at the World Economic Forum in Davos, answering questions about the COP28 climate conference. The Director General made sure to point out that although it was the first time the UAE has hosted a COP climate conference, environmentalism was not new to the UAE. Uh, our founding father, Sheikh Zayed, was one of the first people to have a zero flaring policy in the UAE. Today we have three of the largest, lowest cost solar plants. Uh, we have policies in place for for uh, reducing energy bills and energy efficiency. We've been walking the talk for a long time. And now approximately 80,000 participants from all around the world are expected to make the journey to the United Arab Emirates for the much anticipated COP28. But how do you get to COP28? No, I'm not talking about modes of travel. I'm talking about the number 28. There have been 27 previous climate conferences just like this. I'm Cody Combs, future editor for The National. And in this special climate edition of our Business Extra podcast, we look at the history of COP and how that history will set the tone for COP28 in Dubai and the future of environmentalism. So how do we get from 1995, where it all started, to 2023? What have the COP climate conferences accomplished in the past? Is it much ado about nothing, or is it the best hope to fix the climate crisis? Our search for answers to these questions led us to the United States in Columbus, Ohio. That's where we found Professor Bart Elmore, a climate historian, along with Professor Nick Breifogel, who also specializes in global environmental history at The Ohio State University. They'll be bringing students from Ohio to Dubai to observe the historic two-week climate negotiations. First and foremost, uh, Professor Elmore, I'm going to start. How do you explain COP to the layperson? <laughs> it's a great question because I think what I've found is that most people have no idea kind of what's going on with all of this, even though this is the 28th COP. So I, I try and say, look, this is a, a conference that goes back to 1992. And what the conference of the parties or COP means is the conference of the parties that were uh, signatories to this agreement back in 1992, that is the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. What a mouthful. And the idea back in 92 was to try and bring uh, nations together across the globe to try and see if we can address this climate issue and then to meet regularly to discuss how we're going to approach that. And that's what COP is is the 28th meeting of a, a bunch of nations who are coming together to try and figure out how we're going to solve this seemingly intractable issue of climate change. And so we're excited to be there. And I think what we are finding is that a lot of people just don't understand the the inner workings in part because it is kind of tricky to navigate it. And we're still learning as scholars who study this. So if you don't know about COP, that's okay. I think the time to learn is now. I do think these issues are becoming increasingly more important. And we're, we're hopeful that there will be progress at COP28. Going along those lines, it is, in fact, COP28. What does it mean that we've had 28 of these so far? The cynic might say, well, gosh, they've had 28 of these. What's what's the point? Now, the optimist might say, well, you have to keep plugging away at it. I'm kind of, I'm part cynic, <laughs> part, part optimist. I think if you imagine something as big as global climate change, it requires having you know, over 180 countries at the table and talking. And on the one hand, I think when I was younger, I kept thinking, 
why isn't there more progress on this? And why why don't we have even sterner penalties and sanctions and things like that? If a, if a country doesn't meet its greenhouse gas targets, why isn't there some intervention? And what you realize is that part of it is you want everyone at the table. And I think one of the things we've been learning talking to the leading scholars who study this is that trying to create a big tent requires you maybe not to have those stiff penalties and sanctions in place because you want people at the table at least talking about how can we voluntarily commit our country to try and reduce these emissions. So I think that's the real kind of tension in these cops, why we've had 28. Uh, We haven't solved this issue, obviously. That's why we've had 28. And I think part of it is because we need everyone involved. And I think as a result, what we've seen is negotiations. People might think that COP is all about, okay, there's going to be this rule put in place and there's going to be these firm penalties where if a country violates it, they're going to be sanctioned with fines and things like that. That's not how this works. It is largely based on voluntary contributions of these nations and commitments. And and again, the cynic would say, well, wait a minute, that's never going to solve anything. But the optimist would say, you know what? It's pretty amazing. We have China, the United States, biggest submitters in the world. We have all these people together at the table. And at least we're in conversation trying to negotiate this. So that's where we're at. And I think, yeah, there's a lot of progress that needs to be made, especially at this COP in 28 uh, and 29 as well. But but I think a lot of us are at least optimistic that we have so many countries that are still involved in this. And, and the United States being an important player in that, we're hopeful that uh, we as citizens of the U.S. can be a part of the conversations that help move the dial at 28. Let me just add to that. I think that to a certain degree, the question of why haven't we solved the problem may in fact be asking the wrong question. And part of the reason we've had so many of these meetings is that the problems keep changing and that our sense of what we need to do. So when the when when everybody started to meet beginning in the 1990s, the question was, well, how can we prevent climate change? You know, how can we mitigate? How can we how can we stop or slow this process? And now more and more, and now that we're 30 years later, we've realized, well, we're, we're not stopping it, right? And so now more and more, the questions are about how do we adapt and how do we ensure adaptation that will be, that will have a certain kind of social justice to it, to, to the various different peoples around the world. And our relationship with the global climate is not going to stop even if we even if we solve all, if we solve these kinds of problems and figure out answers to these questions that's an ongoing thing that's been the nature of our relationship to the planet from the very beginning so that we're going to have to keep as an international community having these conversations figuring out what are what are the problems today we have to deal with and then working as quickly uh, as we can to resolve them so for the rest of our lives we should have these meetings and for the rest of the, our lives, indeed, we probably will be having these meetings. It's an ongoing conversation. But going back in history, what are the some of the bigger COP moments? Uh, we've had 28 of these, but some of them stick out more than others. Well, in 1997, there was a negotiation of what is known as the Kyoto Protocol. And the idea that year was to try and put some real, as we were talking about, kind of teeth or rules in place that might effectively address climate change. If you go back to 1992, it's merely kind of statements that we need to address it. And 97 is the moment where we're saying, okay, how do we do that? What are the mechanisms through which we do that? So that was a good moment. We had lots of countries come together. The downside to that was that the United States never ratified that agreement. And as the largest emitter at the time of greenhouse gas emissions, that was seen as a huge setback. And then as we go into the early 2000s, the Bush administration was largely not supportive of trying to rekindle support for 
for big aggressive changes on climate change. And so I think we had a kind of nadir of sorts of uh, a nation that needed to be leading, not because it's the U.S., but because, again, it was one of the largest emitters of greenhouse gases. I think there was a lot of hope. In fact, what was called Copenhagen and the, the conference in Copenhagen, which was very important COP. A lot of people thought with the Obama administration coming in, this was going to be a great year, 2009, top 15. But again, what we saw there was a lot of in, a lot of fighting. A lot, there was never really a kind of unanimous decision about exactly how to move forward. A lot of people left that feeling disheartened. The big next stop, I think, was Paris in 2015. And here's the Obama administration in its second term. It had pushed through Obamacare in the first administration and now had more political capital to focus on climate change in its second term. And again, we're at, they're at the table. China was there. I think that was a big deal. We have two of the biggest admitters negotiating uh, 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 something to try and figure out how do we deal with this. The commitment at that Paris Accord to try and, and keep temperatures to 1.5 degrees centigrade, at least an intent to do that was a big deal because you had a lot of nations, I'm thinking of the Maldives and nations that were already, as Nick has mentioned, suffering from the effects of climate change, saying two degrees Celsius, which was the original target that we were trying to shoot for, we're going to be underwater. So I think there was a lot of goodwill, a lot of of sense of, of progress. And one of the big things we saw that changed was an attempt to get away from kind of let's put top down rules on these countries and let's make it bottom up. Let's let the nations themselves commit voluntary commitments to climate change. Yeah, maybe that doesn't create stiff penalties on these nations, but by doing so, what we've seen is nations kind of coming together, being slightly more aggressive, perhaps, in their approach to climate change. And 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 so here we are. I think the in recent COPs at Glasgow and then in Egypt as well, as Nick has mentioned, we've seen discussions about loss and damage for the first time, which has really become creating a plan for how do we deal with nations that have already suffered from climate change, providing funds for those nations. The adaptation fund as well, something that goes back to Kyoto, has been reinvigorated. How do we make sure that we're providing enough funding to nations to be able to adapt? One of the other things we saw at Glasgow was the first mention, if you can believe it, of fossil fuels in the agreement. Uh, prior to these agreements, there had never been a mention of coal, for example, as one of the things we have to get off of in order to deal with climate change. So lots of work yet to be done. I don't want to be too optimistic, but I think we're seeing both on loss and damage, on the adaptation fund, on the commitments of nations to try and shoot for a better target of 1.5 degrees Celsius, some positive momentum. And Nick, I don't know if I've missed anything. No, I think that's a really great summary. And, and, and you highlight the inherent tension in the problem of trying to get the entire planet together on a particular issue is that if you are too uh, too stringent and too strict in the demands on each country, then fewer people take part. If you're too loose, then you get lots of people. In, if, if you make it too voluntary, then you get lots of people who are willing to take part because it's easy to say, yes, 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 we'll make our own decisions and do what we want to do. But then you have less impact. And this is the kind of back and forth uh, across the spectrum kind of process that, that has been at the core of these negotiations from the very beginning in terms of uh, bottom up, top down, how strict and how not strict, how voluntary and how, how forceful. And 
there's no, uh, sadly, there's no kind of happy Goldilocks point where you can say, ah, yes, this is exactly where we'll all come together. But we keep struggling in that regard, particularly in our changing world. And how many cops have you been to? This will be the first for both of us. And so we're excited to, to go and to kind of take part in, in this one. But I think, Cody, one of the things you mentioned is the, the length of time. My students have asked me here at Ohio State, are you doing okay? Which I think is a reflection of how kind and thoughtful our students are. And they say this because at, at the end of an environmental history course, it's a weighty topic. And, and I think one of the things I share with them is I've been teaching this, the negotiations. I keep adding slides you know, every year as there's a new cop. And when when the students get to see this now, there's slides that I've added over the last 10 years where they kind of see that I've been watching the issue, seeing slow progress in many areas. And I think there's this kind of feeling of, do you feel defeated? And some days maybe I do when you look at some of those PowerPoints and you see the things that haven't been done yet. The Adaptation Fund, for example, we just... The, the target was about $100 billion annually for this adaptation fund. That was the target that was set as we were going into Glasgow and other things. I got to the point where I said, we need to be there. We need to be, we can't negotiate. We're not government. This is a government to government negotiation, but we will be leading, meeting with business leaders. We will be meeting with other folks and trying to be as much as we can a voice in that space. And I think I felt that the students, having taught this for so long, wanted to be there. And we, we felt this in the application pool, just kind of overwhelmed with students who are saying, please take me. Um, I want to be there. I feel like I, I'm, I'm crying in the wilderness here. So I think we'll learn to what effect can students and folks like us have an impact in those spaces. And we hope to learn some techniques as we're there that might make us more effective as we go down the road. We look forward to seeing you here, obviously, the UAE being the second country in the Middle East to host after Qatar. Of course, Egypt being North Africa, they hosted, but in the Middle East, this is a first for the UAE. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think it goes back to what Nick and I was sent, were saying, having studied these negotiations for quite some time. This is never going to work unless we have everybody on board. And one of the beauties of COP is that it, it moves around. There's a reason it's in Paris and different places. And frankly, I think it should not be just confined to Europe and to nations that, frankly, in terms of some of their emissions and things they're doing, they're doing some things well. We need to be everywhere. We need to be in spaces where we're talking to the, the global community. And, and I think it makes it very challenging as somebody who's trying to lead a study abroad that's going to change every year because we've been spending a lot of time trying to get to know Dubai from afar, even though a lot of us are not specialists. And bringing in people that can help us. And frankly, these conversations are, are key. So for anyone out there listening, we'd love to connect because for us, it, this is we're going to be moving around as we go year to year, whether it be Australia or Brazil, thanks to our Office of International Affairs here who are up for the challenge because usually you've got it figured out and you kind of know where the hotels are and everything. We're, we're always going to be moving. But to me, that's the future of these negotiations. You have to be a kind of global citizen in that regard. So we're excited to come to Dubai. I think we're excited to go wherever we go next, because uh, I think it's it's great that it moves around so the centers of power aren't in one place. Conversations should be everywhere. And it seems to me that this is a particularly important 
country to host because of the role of the UAE in, in, in fossil fuel development and, and sales and this sort of thing. As Bart mentioned earlier, it's only recently that the, the international negotiators have been willing really to talk about fossil fuels as part of the conversation. And so this is an opportunity for, for that industry, for the UAE in particular, to take a real leadership role in pushing through solutions and, and pushing for real change and meaningful change in terms of how we how we develop our energy and the kinds of impacts that it has. So I think it's exceptionally important that it's there for that reason to spotlight the fossil fuel question. What's the biggest misconception you think people have about COP climate conferences? I think there's this assumption that maybe these agreements work like trade agreements. If you go to the World Trade Organization in 95 when it's created, and we teach this as well, we, we try and track the the history of trade negotiations alongside the history of climate negotiations, which were happening at the same time, NAFTA, for example, among others, those agreements often come with sanctions. There's also courts where nations can be brought and there could be a claim that a tariff protected a certain industry and it caused problems. That's just not the case with COP. A lot of this, as we said, is voluntary. And and I think that that misconception of, oh, there must be rules being put in place leads people to think, okay, well, it's being solved at COP, so we're good. The, the reality is that when these agreements come back to these nations, the nations do need to put rules in place. It, it's, it, it's incumbent upon the United States, for example, if they're going to say our commitment to deal with reducing our greenhouse gas emissions by X percent is X, that might mean that you have to put in a new clean power rule. That says, okay, we're not going to support certain types of energy exploration or whatever it might be. The, the thing is, we need rules. And I'll leave you with a study that I often cite that I think shows the, the for the skeptics in the room, it gives them fodder, which is uh, a study was conducted by Bain Consulting Company that looked at the voluntary pledges of some 300 companies at the, at the height of the economy, the, some of the largest companies in our, in our economy. And they looked at their pledges related to climate change and environmental issues over a series of years. And they looked at the success rate at meeting those targets. And the finding was really startling, or maybe not, depending on how you look at this. It was a 4% success rate, a 4% success rate. And this was a study that came out in 2019. So right now, 4% success rate at meeting those environmental targets. I think, in other words, if we let volunteerism be the only thing driving this, we're, we're going to be waiting for some time. And I think we have to come back to our nations and say, what are the rules? Frankly, what are the regulations that we need to pass in order to make these things effective? And I would just add to you asked what are the what are the most common misconceptions? I, I think to a certain degree, the biggest problem is that people people don't know about COP. And then I think in recent years we've seen much more news coming and much more attention to these meetings than there there has been in in previous years. And so part of what I I think we need to do is to really spread the word that these are really important negotiations and that we should pay very close a, a attention in every way. And it's partly why we want to take our students there is to be able to, it was for them to be able to see how does this work? How in fact do representatives from all these different countries actually communicate with each other in 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 these kinds of meetings? Because just watching that kind of discussion and, bureau and kind of bureaucracy in action is really something. But I think the other the the real misconception, and I think you know, Bart started to talk about this, is that ultimately it's not these negotiations that will solve the problem. 
right? It's what happens after. It's the implementation of these decisions by all of these countries. It's very easy to be in negotiations, and we all know this, and say, yes, 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 we're going to do X, Y, and, and Z. And yet, what's going to happen after? How are countries going to implement these, these kinds of things so that the real work starts in some ways the day after the negotiations are finished, whatever we've agreed on, how do we put those into place? Uh, and that is going to be a lot of hard work for every country and every person around the world. This is wonderful. I think we covered a lot of ground here. Anything else I'm not asking people should know? And I think it's really important for us, for our students. This is a global problem. This is a global kind of crisis. This is a global kind of obstacle. We need to have global solutions. And for that, we need global connections. And we want, again, why bring in our students because we want them to meet people from around the world so that they can build the kinds of international networks that ultimately will be the foundation for sort of solving these problems. So we look forward to being there and we look forward to really interacting and meeting. Thanks for listening to Business Extra. For more information on the COP28 climate conference in Dubai, head on over to thenationalnews.com. To check out other episodes of Business Extra, please subscribe wherever you're getting your podcast content. Thanks to our podcast production team, and of course, thanks to you for listening. For The National Reporting in the UAE, I'm future editor Cody Combs.